Romans 8, verses 12 through 25, let's give our attention to the reading of God's word for us tonight. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay. And obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we are saved. Now, hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. This is God's word to us tonight. Uh, You know, Slate magazine has an online uh, magazine that had an article that I read recently uh, whose title was this, um, Why is the Blind Side So Popular? Huge movie, kind of got a little bit of an old Miss background there. But one of the author's points that he made as to him thinking as to why The Blind Side was such a huge uh, uh, success uh, as a movie, Uh, and it's not surprising coming from a slate, right, sort of a left-leaning sort of uh, magazine, but he said he felt like the reason why it was so popular is because embedded in the message of The Far Side is this sort of middle America conservative political ideology, right? He says this, he says, the blind side is really the embodiment of compassionate conservatism. This whole idea that George Bush set forward during his uh, tenure as president. He says, a young man has failed by the welfare system, then saved through private initiative, elective charity, personal outrage, and old school benefaction. (laughs) Okay, well, maybe, maybe not, I don't know. Um, He may be right, But in my opinion, you know, when people sort of hear folks sort of read politics into movies, I'm never really sure what to think. And it may be that he's looking uh, 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 sort of a little overly, uh, deeply into the movie like The Blind Side. But there's a part of me that thinks as we approach the topic that we're looking at in Romans 8 tonight, that actually that guy's not looking deeply enough. That's my premise for tonight. You know, I want to ask the question, why is it that we are so enamored of a story that picks someone up out of utter helplessness, just like Michael Orr was, and by simply showing them 
by bringing them into one's family, they bring about a change of life that's so dramatic that nothing in their life is ever the same again, right? Brought about by nothing more than the very power of adoption. Look, I want to pose a question to you tonight. What if there is something that is sort of formatted onto your, onto your spiritual DNA that knows that the idea of adoption is, is, contains power and that it contains within it a powerful path to real and genuine hope like the Apostle Paul is talking about. In the idea of adoption. Look, in the last few weeks, we've been looking at this whole doctrine and how uh, uh, the change that gets wrought in us through the power of the doctrine of justification. And last week, we simply tried to say that the way through this inevitable struggle that we're going to have with our old self uh, is to continue to, as the passage says, walk in the Spirit. We're supposed to walk in the Spirit. And so far from being some kind of detached, kind of um, uh, improved mental state, walking in the Spirit, we said last week, was setting our minds on the things of the Spirit. And I finished very purposely last week with the question, well, what are those things? Well, what we find out tonight is what those things are. The things of the Spirit are the things that the Spirit has done in you. It's your new status, your new place in life that the Spirit has granted to you as someone who follows Christ. That is what it means to walk in the Spirit. It's to remember, to dwell upon, to continue to gaze upon the truth of what God has already done in you in the Spirit. That's it. Look, we've been trying this semester to explore how it might be that coming to better understand Christianity's most fundamental truths, we can sort of put aside our boredom with commonplace Christianity. And what we come to tonight is something that, in my opinion, is more transformational. Um, if, if you just take sheer statistics of my some 16 years of ordained ministry, it's stuff like that we're going to talk about tonight that ends up being the most transformational for people. When people start to get this stuff, nothing looks the same. And you know what that one truth is? By the Spirit, you can become a son of God. You can become one of God's children. And this realization is incredibly powerful. And I would simply open up what we're going to talk about tonight with this simple question. What would it have done to Michael Orr if you could have caught him somewhere wandering the streets of Memphis in his childhood and tried to explain to him what you knew, having been from the future, <laughs> what you knew what was in store for him? Was there any way, would there have been any way to convince this young child gripped in the, in, in the, in the sort of confines of poverty in Memphis would there have been any way to explain to him where he was headed? <laughs> because in many ways, that's Paul's mission to do with you tonight. Is there any way for, to, for me to tell you what's in store for you? And most of us will probably wrestle with it in the same way Michael Orr would have wrestled if he heard it back then. 
Let's dive in and see if we can't grasp it. I simply want to make two points tonight, right? The first one is we need to look at the benefits of our adoption. And secondly, I want you to see the hope of our adoption. The benefits and the hope. Two simple points, right? Okay, the benefits. Look, in verses 12 and 13, Paul says that Christians have this entire new life in the Spirit. But then in verse 14, he explains why we have this new life. And he says, for all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. Look, there is nothing that will renovate the way in which you look at Christianity than by grasping this whole idea that when God brings you in, the relationship that he has to you is not one of mere toleration, but it's an, that there's a family relationship that comes in, the relationship of a good father who joins in with, with his uh, children. Now, before we start to look at a handful of those benefits, and I've got four of them listed for you there on your handouts, I want to give you one qualifier, first of all, because it's something that people wrestle with. Please notice that Paul is not suggesting that we are all, um, can I say, naturally children of God. You know, there's a strain of religious teaching that sort of suggests that, you know, by virtue of our simply being human beings, we're all part of the, you know, the brotherhood of man. And so in that sense, we're all of God's creatures, our children of God. Uh, there's some sense in which that's true in the sense that we have a, 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 a sense of God's imprint put upon us no matter what we do in relation to him. But Paul's not talking about that here. Here he's distinguishing people who are born of the Spirit, that there's something that the Holy Spirit has done that has made you a son of God in a very particular sense. So we're not children of God just by being human beings. <laughs> You're a child of God if the Spirit has been working in you. And so what Paul then turns to is exactly what this uh, 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 Spirit does and what the benefits are of being that Spirit. Look, <laughs> there are certain individuals that Paul describes in other books, namely Ephesians 5 or 6, where he says that the wrath of God actually comes upon the sons of disobedience. So there's not, it's not like we get sonship through by being born. There's a peculiarity of the Spirit having made a life new. That's the qualifier. If you're struggling with that, go back and listen on the podcast to what we talked about before about how this new birth in the Spirit happens through justification. But look, there's a dramatic change of outlook in your life when you start to see the astounding things that Paul claims for us as being children of God. Now I've got four listed here. The first one is this. <clears throat> With adoption comes a brand new security. Security is the first thing that we get. Listen, I want you to think about this in terms of the difference between a slave and a son. Look, if you could go back into an ancient Near Eastern home, there would have been a lot of activity in a home, a lot of people running in and out of the home. Uh, there probably were children as well. Some of those children were actually children of slavery. They were those born into their slave parents, but still resided in the home. Other children would have been children of the master. And had you walked into this whole thing, you might not really know what the difference between the two were. But oh, how different would their outlook on life be, would it not? Look, in some ways, uh, uh, I want you to think of, of, this, of this experience of being adopted in one of two ways. If you are an employee if you're a slave, you do your work, why? 
Mostly because you're afraid of being fired. You're afraid of being cast out. But a child of the master doesn't have any such motivation as life, right? In other words, there's a lot of people who, in my opinion, because they have impoverished views of God's, their relationship to God, act and walk around as if they're, as if they're slaves. But in fact, they're sons. Uh, one of my favorite Bible teachers, uh, Sinclair Ferguson, who's the pastor of First Pres in Columbia, South Carolina, tells a gr- t- does a great lesson on the prodigal son. Remember when the prodigal son comes home after having been away in the far country? And on his way home, he's kind of planning out his speech that he's going to give to his father. And he's thinking to himself, I'm just going to look at him and say, oh, father, I have sinned against heaven and against earth. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And then what he says is, make me like one of your hired servants. In other words, I just want to be back in your house, but I'm willing to walk back as a slave. But do you remember when he actually gets to his father's house and he kind of starts his rehearsed speech? What's interesting is that in Luke uh, 15, the father doesn't even let him finish his speech. Lord, I've, Father, I've sinned against heaven and earth. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make, and all of a sudden the father's like, yeah, blah, 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 blah. Look, somebody go get a robe and kill the fatted calf. We're going to have a party because you're back. And what Ferguson says is, is that we all struggle with this prodigal suspicion that just because I've come back to God, for, for many of you, this has been something that's happened this semester. Just because I feel like God has been working on me through the ministry of his word and through conversations with my friends, yes, he's accepted me back, but I've looked at him and I've said, make me like one of your hired servants. And we've assumed that our posture of, uh, towards him is one of sort of authoritarian, joyless slavery. Look, I want you to think about this. Are you acting tonight like a slave or a son? Think about it. A slave obeys his master because of compulsion. A son obeys his master because that's his daddy. He wants to please him. A slave labors under fear of a fear of getting fired or cast out. But a son realizes that whenever his father disciplines him, it's not because of retribution, but because he's instructing him carefully. A slave lives a life of insecurity, always fearing rejection. A son, though, lives life in security that it's okay to fail as long as my father's still here. A slave concentrates on external compliance to the rules. A son concentrates on his relationship with the father and the enjoyment of that relationship. A slave works very hard, but he doesn't feel any honor in it. But a son feels honored in his work and he knows that he's significant because he's working for someone who approves of him. So how about it, Christian? (laughs) You a slave or you a son? There's a security that comes with adoption. But secondly, there is intimacy that comes with adoption. Real intimacy. Look, the spirit of adoption, it says there in that verse, allows us to cry out, verse 15, Abba, Father, Look, I realize that in the sort of early 21st century, we are laced with a rather ugly, smarmy Christianity that really keeps us from getting what Paul is saying. Look, Paul was a very rigid, um, um, sort of hyper-rigid Jewish leader. He was a man who basically would never have referred to God as father. 
Most scholars have long noted that there were no pre-Jesus references to God as Father in that sense. A Jewish person would have thought that was way too familiar, way too sort of um, uh, uh, personal and irreverent because of it. He didn't refer to God in that kind of a personal way. And yet Jesus consistently tells his followers, even in his prayer, how does his prayer start? Our Father, which art in heaven. Paul takes it to the next level and says it's not just Father, it's Abba, which is the old Aramaic word. It's a very personal, very tender word that can be easily translated in the word that we have as Daddy. (laughs) Daddy, something that's intimate and personal. Paul says you've got that kind of access to this God. Thirdly, Paul says, but there's also assurance that comes with sons. There's security and intimacy, but there's assurance. In verse 16, Paul says that from time to time, it's not an always moment, but from time to time, God's spirit will actually bear witness or communicate, as it were, to your spirit that you are indeed sons of God. Um, I don't want to make too much of this, but y'all, one of the functions of the spirit is to at times, and again, it's not a perpetual thing, but at times to give you a deep and profound inward sense of the fact of saying, yes, this is true of me. (laughs) Absolutely, he has wrought this into me. Granted, it's always to be guided by what the word says, what the word reveals to us, but that doesn't mean that there are not times in a Christian's life And in the history of Christian teaching and thought, Christians have always reflected on this, that there were those moments where suddenly it just kind of came crashing in on me, where people had what you might consider to be an an aha moment, where the lights came on and you thought, man, that, that would be really great if that was true, that God could not just be my judge, but he could be my daddy, the good daddy. Fourthly and finally, and this is the mind-blowing one in my opinion, he gives us an inheritance. There's security, there's intimacy, there's assurance, but there's an inheritance here. Look, the first half of verse 17 is astounding theology. Look, if you want to break up your boredom with Christianity, consider this. A Christian is an heir of God. And fellow heirs or joint heirs with Christ. Look, let me see if I can illustrate this for a second. A number of years ago, I had a student who was really involved in my ministry who, uh, as soon as he graduated, got married very quickly, actually right out of college. And within a year of his marriage, he was facing some pretty tough times. Uh, He was very deep uh, in debt. Uh, In addition to his new wife and his new expenses, he had found himself way behind the eight ball. And he and I met on numerous occasions trying to walk him through some of the awkwardness of these early times of his marriage. But as we continued to talk, he discovered uh, after about being married for about a year and a half that his father-in-law had a terminal illness, really sad uh, uh, experience. But his father-in-law, in in sort of um, uh, putting his affairs in order when he saw what was coming, basically revealed to my friend that he was going to be the recipient. He and his wife were going to be the sole recipient of this vast inheritance. An extraordinary uh, sort of uh, amount of money was to be given them. Look, I was amazed at how it changed my friend's countenance. (laughs) 
mean, it was an absolute transformation, even though, interestingly enough, he didn't have the money yet. But he knew that it was coming. Interestingly enough, his father-in-law went on to live for about another year and a half afterwards, and it took another year and a half after that for them to work the will out. But it didn't matter. My friend's outlook was changed. It was different after that. Why? Because he knew that his future was secure. That's what Paul is saying, is that we can be confident in what God is doing because we need you to know what's in store for you. And you want to know what it is? Brace yourself. The first thing is, is that you are a fellow heir with Jesus. Now look now, (laughs) if that's not sort of making your head spin, you're not listening. I always like to imagine, and we just had Easter, so it helps to sort of put this in context. What was it like for Jesus when he returned to his father after his ascension? Now, again, we're talking about the Trinity, and those are the kind of things that sort of blow our minds anyway. Um, uh, but Jesus, you know, sort of uh, came down and took on the form of a servant. And there was some sense of sort of a sojourn that Jesus went through between him and his father. And then he had this terrible experience of being rejected by his own and then facing the cross and bearing the sins of his people and, and the whole, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me thing until finally he dies there. But then all of a sudden is powerfully raised again from the dead. And then he comes and instructs his believers. And then all of a sudden ascends back to the father. Whew. Now, here's my question. <laughs> what was God the Father's reception of his son like after that? Now, I don't know how much imagination you have, but whatever sort of idea you have of celebration and joy <laughs> and outpouring of affection probably doesn't come anywhere close to what it actually was. But don't miss it. <laughs> Paul just said, we, we, are fellow heirs with him. And that means whatever tidal wave of affection came to Jesus upon his return to the Father is what awaits you and me. We are so masked, are we not? By by the heartbreak of death. Death feels like such an ending. But you know, uh, it's C.S. Lewis who said, look, if we could see now the people who have gone to be with Jesus as they are right now, we would be tempted to fall down and worship them. They would be so alive and full of light and beauty and glory. Look, y'all, that's what Paul says you're in store for. You get what Jesus gets. (laughs) It's your inheritance too. And what is that? Most fundamentally, he says, Paul says, we are heirs of God. Now look, what that possessive means there is that what our inheritance is, is God himself. In other words, it's not necessarily streets of gold or big mansions, even though I think that's part of the deal. (laughs) Or what we're going to talk about next in terms of the new creation. That one's even kind of cool, but hold on for that one. But what we end up getting is God himself. Look, y'all, Psalm 73, the psalmist says, Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but what? But God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. (laughs) 
Look, to the naturalist here, to the materialist here, your paganism can't come anywhere close to this claim. That at the heart of Christianity, the, what we have in store for us is to be at one with our creator. And to live forever in the cosmic dance, as C.S. Lewis has, of joy that exists between Father and Son and Holy Spirit and has been from before the foundations of the earth. (laughs) It's where your head's supposed to explode. Security, intimacy, assurance, inheritance. Did you know that? (laughs) But you know what? It gets better. It brings me to the second point, and I'll finish with this. There is, though, the hope of adoption. Now, look, all that stuff right there is kind of what comes to us as individuals. But Paul actually says it's more than that. Because what comes to us as individuals actually extends out into everything that we see in the world. Verses 18 through 23 sort of explain this. That you know what else gets it? The whole creation. It ain't just you. It's everything. Look. What Paul describes is something that oftentimes is very hard for us to grasp. That in some sense, everything around us, the beauty of creation, has in some way, listen to this, shared in our fallen nature. Does that make sense? Um, Creation, we find in verse 20, 20, struggles with futility, right? Right? In other words, it's alienated from us. There's a sense in which the creation, there's a distance between us and the creation. Um, How is that? Have you ever had that experience of standing on a beautiful piece of scenery and wishing that you could like like go jump down into it? Um, This weekend we were were in Birmingham for a wedding. This just just occurred to me. And we got to go to this beautiful sort of overlook on the crest. I'm not going to say it right. Sally will correct me on this. It's a beautiful overlook. Looking at downtown Birmingham, it was Sunday morning. It was this beautiful morning out. It was kind of cool outside. The weather was perfect. And it was really funny because we were standing there and um, uh, somebody standing next to me looked and said, I mean, this is just so beautiful. It kind of makes you wish you could kind of go hang glide into it. Now, why did he say that? Why do we oftentimes feel that? It's because we were created to have a connection with creation that we oftentimes feel a little bit on the outside of. Why? Because in Paul's word, it's been subjected to futility. Secondly, in verse 21, he says it's actually under the bondage of corruption. That is, the whole universe, listen to this very carefully, is in the midst of deterioration. Energy is always dissipating. It's running down. The universe, we know, is cooling Scientists know this for a fact. The universe is cooling down. In other words, everything that we see around us is bringing death. Nature now is the ultimate killer. And none of us in this room will survive it outside of Christ and God's intervention. Nature gets us all eventually. We're all going to (laughs) die. It's always deteriorating, the loss of energy. That's part of the curse. And then thirdly, we find that the creation is also in pain. It's in pain. Look at verse 22. Suffering is an inevitable part of human experience as long as we're in the world. (laughs) Because of us, there's now suffering in the world. The whole creation has experienced our fallen nature. Okay, so now that's the mess that we're all in. But don't miss the promise here. Because what Paul says is, is that the physical order, listen to this, this is the big one. (laughs) The physical order of things is going to be fixed along with the spiritual order of things. This is so cool. 
In other words, not only will we be made right, but the world around us will be made right too. Look, in other words, the three things that I just described that mark creation as sin will actually be reversed. (laughs) So that instead of futility, eventually the creation is going to experience fulfillment. Again, that was a lovely sight that I saw this uh, Sunday. It blew me away. It sort of healed me a little bit. I drove back home feeling pretty good about life. Imagine what it'll look like when it's no longer under frustration. When I was, uh, when I was at Alpine Camp years and years and years ago, I don't, don't talk about how long ago it was, uh, there was a night out for the guys that we got to go in a little place called the Georgia Brow. Uh, Alpine guys, you kind of know a little bit. Of, if you don't know the trail there, I'll tell you where it is. But we went out one night, about 30 or 40 of us guys, because we heard there was going to be a meteor shower that night. Now, you got to understand, the Georgia Brow is this beautiful overlook where you can see like into, I don't know, two or three states or something like that. And you, you can see for forever on this beautiful overlook looking over onto the Georgia side of this little cliff. And that particular night, it was perfectly clear, but we knew that the meteor shower was coming. And the meteor shower was at its full strength that night. Now, I don't know how many meteor showers you've ever seen. But for me, every other meteor shower I'd ever seen always looked like a little pinpoint. Something that looked like a little shooting star. Oh, that was cute. Did you see it? This particular night was, I I can still call it up as being one of the most amazing nights of my life. Y'all, I'm talking about these huge, like phosphorescent streaks of white ribbon came flashing across the sky within seconds of each other. That would literally light up the whole ground around us like it was daytime or something. And literally, you've got these 30 or 40 alpine guys laying on their back watching it all just going, wow. The thing is, that's creation subjected to futility. What happens when it's all unleashed? Answer, I don't know, but it's going to be amazing. And it's okay for us to sort of look and go, I don't know, I want to stop and think about that. Yes, that's what the Spirit, you know what you're doing? You're walking in the Spirit. What will that beauty look like? Guess what? That's the Spirit working there. Okay, so secondly, not only will there not be decay, things are not going to decay, there's now going to be strength and newness. Think about this now, especially you scientists. Currently, everything is getting older, everything is fading, everything's getting weaker. But in the new heavens and the new earth, Things grow ever newer. Things grow more beautiful. Things grow more cohesive and coherent. Listen, scientists, I mean, the second law of thermodynamics will have to be rethought in the new heavens and the new earth. This inevitable process to decay will be reversed so that we don't sort of begin to get, we don't understand this. I mean, how old will we be in heaven? It doesn't matter. Because we'll all be headed to get stronger and brighter and more fulfilled. I know you're looking at me going, how can that be? I don't know, but it's going to be cool. That's the point. Thirdly, instead of pain, there will be joy. And you want to know why there's going to be joy? Because everything that was painful here is going to be made up for. Now, i got to be careful when I say that. Because I know enough of you in this room to know that you've been through some pretty rough stuff. And you get to points in your life where you look at all the junk in your life and you're thinking, eh, I don't know, Les. I'm not sure how God's going to make up for this. Um, Look, I was there in the room where I watched my wife give birth to my third child, Luke. 
And um, she did so uh, much uh, against her will uh, without an ounce of pain medication. Eight and a half pound baby. That's what my wife did. And I remember the moment that the doctor came in and said, no, baby's coming now. We don't have time for your epidural. And hearing the air in the room get sucked out by this. I'll be honest with you. I was afraid for that doctor. Okay. Because I honestly did not know what my wife was going to do to him. And I'm not making this up. I literally kind of backed up a couple steps from the bed. I was so terrified by exactly what she was going to do to that doctor. But you know what's funny? Our doctor had actually delivered, I'm sure, hundreds of thousands of children. He knew. (laughs) Hundreds of thousands? Not hundreds of thousands. Hundreds or thousands. Why is that funny? He had been in this situation before. Here's what's interesting about that doctor, though. He wasn't panicked about what my wife was going to do to him. You want to know why? Because he knew that as soon as Ginger had Luke in her arms, it was gone. Whatever pain she went through was gone. The Bible actually makes promises like that. Because the Bible looks and says in verse 22 of Romans chapter 8 that the world is giving birth to a new version of itself. That's what's going on. And those who await Jesus' coming will have all of the seemingly absurd pains of life more than made up for in that day. You say, Les, I can't imagine that. And I tell you, neither can I, but it's going to be cool. (laughs) Dare him. Look, y'all, Christians have a very unique view of the world around them. There's a whole lot of people that sort of have missed the importance of the created order, thinking that they should separate themselves from the material world. That's wrong. Other people live as if the created order was all there was. That can't be right either. But see, Paul leads us into this wonderful truth. And in many ways, it's a perfect Christian environmentalism. Christians ought to be the best environmentalists because we're looking and saying, yes, we're going to protect our environment because it's going to be the thing that gets renewed one day in the new heavens and the new earth. What is the world around us? The world around us is inherently good, but it's also fallen. And for that reason, I'm to be a part of this world. I'm here to actually be a part of it. Look, I get these questions all the time. People are like, Les, do you think that in heaven we're going to know each other? Yeah, why wouldn't we? In other words, the assumption is that heaven is sort of this disembodied spirit state, you know, where we're just kind of wafting spirits around, having no sense of what's going on. Look, please understand something. The new heavens and new earth is a material existence. My assumption is that we'll have conversations just like we're having right now. That we'll sit on benches like we have right now. That we'll worship together. That we'll work that will go out and continue to explore the vast reaches of this creation that even the Hubble telescope can't begin to get next to. Listen to me. (laughs) Listen to me, son of God. Listen to me, child of the Father. That's what's in store for you. Nothing less. You want to walk in the Spirit? Think on those things. Dwell on those things. Let that bake your noodle. (laughs) And in so doing, perhaps you'll find the joy that Jesus promises to bring by his spirit. That, as always, is an invitation for you. Let's pray. 
Lord Jesus, could it really be true that you're going to take our worst suffering, our worst suffering, and actually bring out of it a renewable joy, a joy that never lets us go? Lord Jesus, if you would show us even a glimpse of that, if maybe even tonight through, through feeble words, would you maybe perhaps fire our imaginations so that we can see what you have in store for us? And having seen that, maybe we would look at tomorrow a little bit differently. Maybe we would not look at our future with such darkness. Maybe we wouldn't look at the, our neighbor with such despair. Maybe we'd start to see our own dignity in what you've promised in us. Lord Jesus, we are tired. It's been a long year. And we need you to act. And so, Holy Spirit, would you fall upon us as we sing, it is well with our souls that you would make it well with our souls. And in so doing, glorify yourself. For we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.